Billy's right. He's already made mention. The conference that we attended this week was, it was overwhelming. I think Billy used the, uh, the, the phrase, he says, you know, I, I went to get a drink. And they turned the fire hose on. And that's what they did. I mean, the preaching that we heard from men like this, I'm going to drop some names to you. Mark Dever, Philip Jensen, he's Australian. Great accent. It was awesome. Ligon Duncan, Al Moeller, Matt Chandler, Kevin DeYoung, C.J. Mahaney, Tabidi, and I can't pronounce his last name, Anya Wobbly or something like that. I can't remember, no, but he was a tremendous preacher. David Platt, John MacArthur, and John Piper. And let me tell you what, man. They challenged us. They challenged us. And right now, I know that Lowell is at Appalachian Bible College delivering the morning message down there, and I know he's challenging them. He's challenging that new young pastor that was just it's going to be ordained. And, um, you know, he's our starting preacher. I'm the relief preacher, okay? They call the bullpen, so I'm in. So hopefully I can deliver some, some words to you all this morning that will edify all of us. Um, I want to go back to what Pastor Brock asked you this morning. Was there someone significant in your life? And, and he set it up so well when he said it was his dad. And then we sing, the, sing that song, You're a good, good father. I hope that you know our Father in heaven. I hope that you have that personal relationship with him and, and just know what he means to us. In my life, there was four men that I can remember that significantly impacted my, my walk with God, my being a man of God. Each one of them took of their time and invested in me. They didn't have to, but they wanted to. And they taught me what it meant to be a man of God. During times of rejoicing, they rejoiced with me. During times of darkness, when I was spiritually low, they lifted me up. And they encouraged me. But more than anything that I always be thankful for is that they challenged me. These men would not allow me to stand still in my walk of faith. They would not let me stay stagnant or fall backward. They pushed me. They spurred me on. They even gave me a swift kick when I needed it. And that was often. If they saw me standing still too long, they pushed me forward. If they saw me moving out too fast, they reined me back in. Kind of sounds like they were riding a horse, right? It was more like a stubborn mule is what they had hold of. And all they did and are still doing, some of them are still doing it. I cannot help but see the love of brothers in Christ. Brothers who love one another as Christ first loved us. As you know and are hearing regularly, there's a men's retreat coming up, as Matt just talked about, as Billy just talked about. There's a men's retreat coming up. And as I was planning what I would speak about this Sunday, the men's retreat was in the forefront of my mind. The planning of it. The discussing it. And I thought, what is it that our families need so desperately? What is it that our church needs so desperately? What is it that our nation needs so desperately? And what came to me was its leadership. It's godly, courageous, faithful leadership. And I'm not just talking to men here. Ladies, I'm talking to you too. Because all of you are leaders. You're leading someone. 
Leadership is not just a man issue. It's a believer of Christ issue. It's a follower of Christ issue. And leadership is for you too, ladies, especially when some of you are doing it in your household alone with no help. So this morning I'm going to share an example of what a godly leader looks at. We're going to look at the man, as Billy already said, a man who, who was created for one purpose. That's to follow, obey, serve, and glorify God, and to challenge others to do the same. And that man's name is Joshua. So you can start turning to the book of Joshua in your Bible now. Go to chapter 1. You'll find Joshua in the beginning of your Bible, in the front of the Old Testament. After the first six books of the, it's the first five books, it's the sixth book of the Old Testament. You have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then the book of Joshua. And we're going to be there in just a minute. Now I want to tell you a little bit about Joshua. Who was Joshua? Okay. Interestingly enough, Joshua, translated in Greek, is Jesus. Okay. He wasn't Jesus. But that's what the name Joshua means. Joshua was born a slave in Egypt during the time of the nation of Israel, that they were in slavery in Egypt under the pharaohs. When God sent Moses back to Egypt to rescue the, the Israelites from the hand of the pharaohs, Joshua was there. Joshua witnessed the miracles of God, the ten plagues that, that God brought upon pharaohs in Egypt at the, at the staff of Moses. Okay? Moses didn't do it. God did it. But the staff that Moses used was a symbol of God's power. Joshua was there. He witnessed the first Passover, the final blow that convinced Pharaoh to let the people go. Joshua was there when God parted the Red Sea. You remember the story. The Israelites are facing the Red Sea, and the Egyptians have changed their minds, and the army comes pursuing them. They're going to bring them back. Israelites are worried, what are we going to do, what are we going to do, and what does God do? He parts the Red Sea. And the Israelites are able to cross that Red Sea on dry ground. And Pharaoh's army pursues them across into the Red Sea, and what does God do? He closes the sea over them, drowning the army, saving the Israelites. Joshua was there. He was there to witness God's guiding presence as the people made their way through the wilderness. A pillar of fire by night. A cloud by day. He saw him. He was there. He witnessed the miracles when they were in the wilderness of the manna from heaven. Meat from quail. Water from a rock. Joshua was there. Joshua was Moses' right-hand man. He was his assistant. When Moses went up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. He took Joshua with him part way. Not all the way, but part way. Joshua was there. When they were coming down off the mountain and they could hear the sound of the people sinning in the camp, Joshua was there. He says, it sounds like the sound of war. Moses said, that's not the sound of war. That's the sound of people going crazy. Joshua would guard the tent of meeting. When Moses went in to meet with the Lord, Joshua was outside. And when Moses left the tent of meeting to go to talk to the people, Moses stayed. I mean, I'm sorry, Joshua stayed at the entrance to the tent of meeting guarding it. When Moses selected 12 spies to enter Canaan to search out the land, when it was time for them to go into the land, Joshua was one of those spies. And when those 12 spies returned, only two of them gave positive reports. 
Caleb, and Joshua. Joshua said, let's go. God has given it to us. Why are we waiting here? Let's go. But the other ten turned the hearts of the people, and the people revolted against Moses. They would not go. They wanted to string Moses up. And the one to stand beside Moses, two actually, Caleb and Joshua. Against a million people, they stood by the word of God. And when God would punish that generation that disobeyed Him, resolving to let that generation die in the desert, it would only be three men that would survive from that generation. Joshua, Caleb, and Moses. The only three. Joshua would live the 40 years of wandering the desert, watching that entire generation die off as God commanded. And a new generation, generation rise up and take its place. But he would be there. He would be there to tell that new generation of all the things that God had done. Joshua was there. And Caleb was there. And Moses was there. God would not allow Moses to enter the promised land. He had a problem with something that Moses had done. But he allowed Moses to see the promised land from Mount Nebo. And when Moses saw the promised land, he died there on Mount Nebo, and God buried him. In Joshua chapter 1, it brings us to the end of that, that period of time that Moses was in charge. After 30 days, we come to Joshua chapter 1, 30 days of mourning for the death of Moses. In Joshua chapter 1, we begin a new era a new, new time when the Israelites would be entering the promised land and God would raise up a leader especially for this purpose and that leader being Joshua. Now let's take a look at Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore... Arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory." No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Chapter 1 shows us a leader's preparation. 
God commands Joshua to get ready. Get the people ready. It's time to move out. But he tells Joshua, prepare yourself to lead, Joshua. And then God reminds Joshua who's in charge here. Remember, Joshua, all those things that happened during Moses' reign, when he led the people, all those miracles, those weren't Moses, Joshua. Those were me. I'm the same God that was with Moses. And I'm the same God that's with you. And he's the same God that's with us. Just as God was with Moses, just as Joshua had witnessed God's presence the past 40-odd years, he's still there. And he will be there by the side of Joshua. So if this God, this great God, this mighty God that Joshua had witnessed, if he's there and if he's with us, then what do we have to fear? Why are we sometimes a people of fear? He's telling Joshua, you will not fear. You shall not fear. You do not need to fear because I'm the one that's going to make it happen, Joshua. But yet notice that in verses 6, 7, and 9, three times Joshua is told by the Lord to be strong and courageous. Why? Why does God repeat himself three times? I've read the Bible enough to know that when God repeats himself, he's trying to tell us something. He's trying to tell Joshua something. Be strong and courageous. Now, I thought about this. Is Joshua afraid of the people of Canaan? I don't think so. Because when he came out of Canaan as a spy, and he came back and said, let's go. They're nothing. We can take these guys. He was ready to go. So he's not afraid of the people of Canaan. Was he afraid of battle? No. Do you know back in Exodus 14, I'm sorry, Exodus 17, there's a... There's a description of a battle that Israel fought when they were on the Exodus. Amalek of the Amalekites attacked Israel. He came at the Israelites with an army. Now, Israel did not have an army. Remember, they were slaves. They weren't trained to fight. They didn't have weapons. And God tells Moses, have Joshua lead the people into battle. <laughs> Can you imagine being Joshua? Uh, wait a second, we don't have an army. But they did. They went into battle against the Malachites. And Moses told Joshua, I will stand on a hill with my staff. And I will raise my staff over my head, and God will give you the power to defeat the Amalekites. And that's what Moses did. Joshua went into battle with the Israelites. Moses stood on a hill, raising his hand and his staff over his head. And as long as he had his staff over his head, Joshua was winning the battle. But when Moses' arms got tired and his staff lowered, then the Amalekites would start to prevail in the battle. So Moses, I mean Aaron and Hur, come alongside Moses, sit him down on a rock, and they hold his arms up high. And while he's holding his arms up high, Joshua defeats the Amalekites. So Joshua was not afraid to go into battle because he knew who was in charge, and who would win that battle. And the interesting thing is, when you go to Exodus 17, 14, listen to what the Lord said to Moses. Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. Specifically, he wanted Joshua to remember this. 
for the battles that were to come. So I do not believe that Joshua was afraid to go into battle militarily. But when we hear those words, strong and courageous, we think of battle. We think of warriors going into battle, having the bravery to go and fight the enemy. But these words in Hebrew for strong and courageous that make up this phrase have nothing to do with military battle. That's not what God was telling Joshua here. These are the same words used in Isaiah 35, verses 3 and 4. Don't go there. I'll read it for you, but write this reference down. Isaiah 35, verses 3 and 4. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. God is telling Joshua, prepare yourself. Prepare your heart and prepare the hearts of the people. Strengthen them. Encourage them. For what? For what is to come. Where are they going? Into the land of Canaan. What's Canaan like? It's a land full of vile, sinful people. Sometime when you get a chance, read Leviticus chapter 17 to 20. Some of you might be familiar with it. That's where God tells the Israelites all the things that they should not do. Don't read this stuff to your children. It's not nice. This land is full of people that are doing all the things that God told the Israelites not to do. Sexual immorality of the, of the degree that made Sodom and Gomorrah look mild. And in Leviticus 20:23, God told Moses that the people of the lands that Joshua was about to enter did all the things he detested, and that is why he would drive them out from before his people. It was a culture gone nuts. It was a culture that was an abomination to God, and God was going to punish it at the hands of the Israelites, at the hands of Joshua. And in this passage, God is preparing Joshua for going into that land. He's telling Joshua, Joshua, you better be in my word. You better be studying my word. You better know what I expect of you, and you better teach it to the people. Because that's the only thing that's going to protect you, Joshua. That phrase, strong and courageous in the Hebrew, means harden your mind, be steadfast, be resolute. It reminds me of a phrase that, that I used to hear when I was a kid that is, is called steal your mind, S-T-E-E-L. Be firm of your convictions, and don't let anyone sway you from your mission, from what you're supposed to do. Do not let anyone draw you into the things that you shouldn't be into. How many of you told your kids that? How many of you told your teenagers, nothing good happens after midnight? You better be home. That's what this phrase means. It's a command that expresses the inner tenacity needed to stick with a task that is achieved by obeying God and trusting his promise to supply the necessary abilities and resources to accomplish his task. 
You see, Joshua and the people, they had to be prepared. They had to be prepared. They had to steal their mind. They had to know who their God is, that He's a good, good Father, so that they wouldn't become contaminated by the culture that was going to bring them down. So jump ahead to Joshua chapter 6. This is a story that everyone knows, the conquest of Jericho. Even probably our, our kids back here could tell us about Jericho. The great walled city. It would be the first test of the people of Israel. You know the story. God told them how to conquer Jericho. The silliest battle plan in history, right? March around Jericho once for six days. On the seventh day, march around it seven times. And on the seventh time... The priests will blow the horns, and the people will shout, and what happened? The walls come tumbling down. And the Israelites take the city. And they're commanded by God, do not take any of the treasures that are in the city. They are to be devoted to the treasury of the Lord. Why? Because this was God's victory, and the spoils of war that are usually dedicated to the king... The conquering king, who's the conquering king? God. Dedicate the spoils of war to God. So they take the city. Everything's going well. Then comes a smaller city, the city of Ai. Less well protected, less people, less well defended. And the people say, hey man, let's go get that city. Let's go take that one. We don't need God for this. We got this. And they head up the eye, and they get their tails kicked. They're chased down the mountain, and people are dying. Israelites are dying. What happened? What happened? The Canaanites are not stronger. If anything, they're weaker. But so are the Israelites. Why are they weaker? What has happened? Well... We start to get a picture of it in chapter 7. So jump ahead to chapter 7. You get the kind of a feeling you're doing on a world tour through, a, a quick tour through Joshua. Start reading from verse 7. Joshua chapter 7, verse 7. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. <laughs> Joshua, Joshua, Joshua. What's wrong with that? What's that sound like? Anybody remember Adam in the garden? When God said, what have you done? What did he do? This woman that you gave me made me eat the apple. Passing the blame off on somebody else. And who's he passing the blame off on? God. Joshua was trying to blame God for this, for this defeat. Do you ever do that? Something bad happens in your life, and you're like, gosh, God, why did you do this to me? What have you got against me? Why is it that sometimes calamity happens in our life, and we think that God's to blame? Nothing we did, right? Couldn't be us. Couldn't be our stupidity that caused the problems in our life, could it? 
And look what, jo- look what God has to say to Joshua after he says, Why, Lord, why did you do this? Would that we had never come across the Jordan. Verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, Get up! Exclamation mark. I have some people that say, when you read a passage of scripture like that, do you think God really said it that way? Yeah, I really do. Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things from Jericho. They have stolen and lied, put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Yikes. God says, if you don't clean up this sin, I'm not here. I'm out of here. You're on your own. Sin has entered the camp of Israel already, so soon. They just got started. And already they're messing up. The rest of chapter 7 is a sad story of a man named Achan. The man who took some of the devoted things and hid them under his tent. And then God gives Joshua instructions on how to find out Achan. And Achan is discovered. And God gives him instructions on how to purge the sin from the camp of Israel. How to purge the impurity. It's sad, isn't it? It doesn't take long for us to be blinded by the things of the culture and decide that they're more real to us than a God that we can't see. Achan, his sons and daughters, all of his livestock are taken outside the camp and stoned to death. All of Achan's possessions and their bodies are then burned. And a pile of stones is heaped on top of them at the instructions of God. The sin has been purged. One man's sin. One man's failure to steal his mind, to resolve to be pure, to resolve to follow the commandments of God. One man's sin caused the destruction of his entire household. It nearly caused the destruction of a nation. This is a leader's failure. The second blank on your outline. A leader's failure. But the question I have for you this morning is, yeah, we know it's Achan's failure, but is it Joshua's failure too? Did Joshua fail to prepare the heart of Achan? Why wasn't Achan's heart prepared to resolve to follow the commandments of God and resist temptation. With the sin purged, Joshua and the people of Israel go on to take the battles, to take the land that they're to take. It brings us to Joshua chapter 13. God tells Joshua he's now too old to continue. 
At this time, Joshua, it's been about 25 years since the death of Moses. Joshua was 80 years old when Moses died. So Joshua has been leading the Israelite people for the last 25 years. He's about 105 years old. And God says, Joshua, you're too old. I'll take it from here. Here's what I want you to do. Divide up the lands that have been taken among the people. And prepare the people for the next phase, the next era of leadership. That brings us to chapter 24. All the way at the end of the book. At the end of the book, we find Joshua calling the leaders of Israel together to prepare them for what is to come. He knows he must leave them soon. Remember who these people are. These are like his grandchildren, okay? This generation was the children of Joshua's generation. He loves them like a grandfather. He's cared for them. He's mourned with them when they mourned. He's rejoiced with them when they have rejoiced. He's led them. He's taught them. He's like the patriarch looking down upon his people. And he worries about them. What will happen to these people when he's gone? Will they continue to obey God? Will they compromise with the culture as Achan had done and bring destruction upon their families? Have they learned? Joshua knew they had to continue to obey God. They had to trust his promises. They had to trust his word that what God says is true. People had to reject what the world said was truth. They had to reject what the culture around them said was good. And they had to obey God's word. It would mean their life, their future, the future of their children for generations to come. And in chapter 21, chapter 24, the now very old beloved patriarch of Israel is challenging his people. This is a leader's challenge. A leader's challenge. That now famous, everyone knows this verse, this passage. Verse 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord. This is Joshua talking to the people, to the leaders. He's assembled them all. Fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. And serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He challenged the nation of Israel on this day, choose. Decide what you're going to do. You're going to follow God or you're going to follow this culture that's going to destroy you. And he made no secret where he stood, where he was going to plant the feet of his family. We will serve the Lord. And the people would go on. They would acknowledge that they know who their God is, all that he's done for them. We're going to serve the Lord. But look what Joshua does in verse, thir- verse 19. But Joshua said to the people, You're not able to serve the Lord, for He's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do you harm and consume you and have, having done, after having done you good. 
I like what he's done here. You're not able to serve the Lord. I used to coach this girls' softball team many years ago, okay? Nine and 12 years old, 12-year-olds. About the third year, the team was just, we were unbeatable. We were undefeated. 17 games, we were about like 16, 14 and 0, okay? It's getting close to the end of the season. I know we're going to be champs. They, nobody can touch us. These girls are awesome. They go start, they go play this team that's not as good as they are. And we're getting beat. About the fifth inning, I know, Brock, you've probably done this. Brian, you've probably done it. About the fifth inning, girls come in, they sit down on the bench. I'm like, I got this. I go over and say, you guys can just take a break. You're going to lose. They're like, what? I said, you're going to lose. There's no way you can beat this team. They're better than you are. Oh, boy, did that make them mad. They got up to bat, and they just crushed it. They killed it. They won the game. They came back and said, see, nah, 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 nah. I was like, I knew you could beat them, but your head wasn't right. You were cocky. You were thinking that you didn't have to try. You didn't have to work hard. And they did it. And that's what Joshua did right here. He's saying, you can't serve the Lord. You're not able to. Look what they said. And the people said to Joshua, verse 21, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. They're witnesses against themselves. They're going to hold each other accountable. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. All is good, right? I wish I could say they lived happily ever after. But we'll get to that in a minute. But Joshua, for me, is the very example of what every godly leader is called to do. He must challenge the people. He must be courageously, steadfastly minded. He must know who he's going to follow. He must know what the truth is. He must not waver. Even if it means persecution. Even if it means ridicule. He must not waver from God's truth. And even if it means persecution or ridicule from our own family. We must be obedient to God's leading and calling in our lives. We must be constantly vigilant against the things that will corrupt our family or contaminate them. And we must not allow our family to compromise, to make their lives more pleasing to the culture, to fall for the lies of the culture and the lies from those that are too weak to stand against it. We have to make the sometimes hard choices for our family to reject compromise and stand strong in the will of God even if it means that they get mad at us. So we're the leaders. And God's our leader. But remember, we're never alone. We have the creator of heaven and earth standing with us. We're never by ourselves. Even when we think we are. Even when we're being attacked. Even when everybody else is doing something else. 
that generation, the children of Joshua's generation, the ones that said, we will obey the Lord, they did serve the Lord. But trouble would soon come with their sons and their daughters. The next generation. Jump ahead in your Bible to Judges chapter 2. Just a few pages. Judges chapter 2. And the people served the Lord. Verse 7. Judges chapter 2, verse 7. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who continued, who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. This generation dies. And look at the saddest verse, I think, in the Bible. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. These people that had just said, we will serve the Lord to Joshua, their children, it says, did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Verse 11, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. One generation later, they don't know the Lord. How does this happen? Whose fault was it? Why were the hearts of these kids not prepared to resist the lure of the culture? Who failed? Their parents? I read this passage, and as a father, it scares me to death. Are my kids hearing it? Are they living it? Do they know their God? Have I done the job that I'm supposed to do to teach them as a leader of my family? Have we? What you have here is a possibility of a generation that got so comfortable with the culture of the world around them Maybe they became so tolerant with the sin around them. Oh, it's okay. It's, it's, it's still love. Come so enamored with the idols of materialism or body image or career. Maybe they started accepting the lies of false religions. There's more than one way to God. Maybe they started prioritizing things like youth sports, television shows, sporting events. Oh, sorry, wrong generation. Maybe they got so looking like the rest of the world instead of being holy and separate unto God that they just found themselves falling into sin and didn't even know it. 
Or maybe they did realize it and they just rejected God intentionally. Maybe they just got tired of that stuff. There's a theory kind of about this called the three chairs principle by Dr. Bruce Wilkinson. You've got it in your bulletin. Let me see if I can explain it a little bit to you real quickly. Chair one is called, wrong one, commitment or confident. Hopefully you can see this. I worked hard on this last night. Joshua is an example of someone who sits in chair one. Jesus is Lord and Savior. He's on the throne of this person's heart. This person's life is committed to serving Jesus wholeheartedly. He knows the Word of God is true. And the Word of God impacts every area of his life. He looks to the Word of God for anything that's going to come along. Any decision he makes, he looks to the Word of God. Jesus is priority, number one. Everything else is secondary. Even himself. He's strong. He's courageous. He's steadfastly minded. He knows God. He loves God. Maybe he knows life without God. He was there once. And Jesus saved him, redeemed him, and he's thankful for it. He's so thankful for it that he can't live without him. He never wants to know that life again. Then there's chair two called compromise or contaminated. Now this person goes to church every Sunday. He looks real good. He looks like a Christian. He's got to be a Christian. He prayed the prayer. Prayed the prayer. I prayed the prayer. Hey, I got baptized when I was five. I'm good, man. I'm good. Maybe they're at church not because of their own desire, but because of the desire of their parents. I just do it to make mom happy. <laughs> my dad makes me go. Well, my girlfriend's going, so I'll accompany her or my boyfriend. I, I just go for my boyfriend. On the outside, they appear to be everything that chair one is. But their faith walk is marked with inconsistency and compromise. When things come along that make them have to decide between the culture or Jesus, well, the culture is going to make me fit in. So I'll push Jesus back. So for this person, Jesus is their Savior, but he's not their Lord. Self is on the throne for this person. And then we have this last one. Conflict or contempt, the third chair. This generation that fell away, they sit in the third chair. Okay? For this person, they rejected God completely. Their parents have gone to church, maybe, or their leaders. They've gone to church, but it's a bore. I don't really want to be here. Or maybe their, their, parents, their parents might have been compromisers. Okay? And they saw what their parents did. They saw this inconsistency. They saw the parents talking one way on Sunday and doing something else the rest of the week. And as they got older, they said, this is hypocrisy. I don't need this crap. Sorry, bad word. I don't need this. 
and they reject God completely, they shake a fist in the face of God. They don't want anything to do with it. You know, for this person, Jesus is not only not on the throne, he isn't even in the kingdom. They don't want anything to do with it. Now, let me get something very clear here. I I should say this. This isn't about parents. It could be any leader. Okay? This person over here or this person here, their faith in Jesus Christ is their responsibility. And only their responsibility. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7, in a couple of different places, verses 13 to 14 and verse 20, This is how Jesus says it. Verses 13 to 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. It's like I've always told my kids, okay? Be careful following the crowd because the highway is broad that leads to destruction. You've got to enter through the narrow gate. That's what Jesus is saying here. And people have said it's a turnstile. You can't get to heaven on your parents' faith. You can't get to heaven on your boyfriend or girlfriend's faith. Or your spouse. It's yours, and it's yours only. And the sad thing about these two chairs right here is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father... Who is in heaven? Won't it be sad if you get to heaven and Jesus says, I don't know you? Now the good thing is, people that are here, they don't have to stay there. They can come over here. There's plenty of chair ones available. So the question this morning is, Every one of us sits in one of these chairs. But which one is it? Which one are our kids sitting in? Do we know? Have we been preparing them? Are we living our life so that they know Jesus is priority? Joshua challenged the people of Israel, choose this day whom you will serve. He challenged them to sit and share one, and that generation did. But who challenged the next generation? Who's challenging our next generation? We need leaders. We need strong and courageous leaders. Are you ready to choose this day whom you'll serve? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your son who gave his life on the cross for us. He redeemed us when we weren't worth redeeming. Do we understand that sacrifice? Do we believe in what He did? Do we live our lives 
as living sacrifices, as a testament to what He did for us? Do we have any real heart knowledge of what it means to be your children? Do we have any real knowledge of what it means that you are a good, good father? Dear God, I hope you will speak to our hearts this morning. I hope you will speak to the generations that are coming after us. Father, may everyone here make that connection with you. Know you personally. May you be with us now. Continue with us the rest of the week. To your precious name we pray. Amen.